Welcome to Southern Sisters Radio on Faith Talk Atlanta, the show for Southern women and the men who adore them. Join us as we celebrate life from a Southern point of view. Here's your host, author, founder of Southern Sisters Home and true Southern sister, Jenny McCormick Earhart. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to the Southern Sisters Radio Program. I am your host, Jenny McCormick Earhart, and I am just relishing autumn in the South. Now, if you've been as hot as I've been all summer, okay, and Southern, there's this misconception out there, I think, that Southerners love the heat. Um, let's just clarify that. No, Southerners tolerate the heat. Yes, I've I've lived here my entire life. You and agree. It still gets way too hot you agree. every summer. Hello, Nick. <laughs> Hello, Nick Jenny. Bain, my producer. Yes. No, I, I know exactly how you feel. And and like I said, I, I've, I've often talked about this before. I We did our ge- lineage, our genealogy, and mm-hmm. I've got a lot of Swedish roots in me. Okay. <laughs> and my theory on that, and I've talked about it before, is Swedes are accustomed to cooler temperatures. Yeah. You know, you can't just pick one up and drop them in the middle of the, you know, Southern Here. heat and think that we're going to enjoy it. So exactly. I do. I love the South. I love the heat. Um, but this time of year, you start, you know, it's coming. You know, you feel it coming. It's been hot, 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 hot. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning, you step outside and there's that, you know, there's that thing in the air. It's that cool, crisp, crisp mm-hmm. cool air. Everybody's happy. There's a skip in my step. Um, and, and mostly when it gets folks towards autumn and I start thinking about autumn temperatures and Living through the fall, I start thinking about what I'm going to be eating. And uh, it's all about what I'm going to be eating. And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. Ooh. We're going to be talking about state fair food. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Some hello. of my favorite. Hello. Oh, man. Everything is either sweet, salty, or fatty. Just fried, as it should be. Fried, <laughs> yes. Everything is fried. <laughs> oh, but wow, what a week it's been. My my second daughter got married last weekend. And oh, it was congratulations. Why oh, well thank you. Well, you know, I, congratulations to her. You know, you realize what that makes me though. That just makes me an old woman. <laughs> that just makes <laughs> no, me No, it doesn't. It yeah. makes you the favorite mother in law. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes me the mother of a married woman. It's actually my <laughs> second daughter that got married, and so it was a beautiful southern wedding, and uh, there's just something about weddings in the South. We, mm-hmm. I think we do them well, you know? We do. We do, we do them, do them right. with particular style, particular grace. It's got that, it's got that extra kind of, uh, I, I want to say that koofy element to it. It does. It does. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, we do. We know how to throw a party. That's for sure. Yeah, we know how to eat and drink for sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At least my crew does. <laughs> but interestingly, after the wedding, I kind of jetted off. I say that. I, I hopped a, you know, I hopped a quick flight up to D.C. to visit my other daughter, um, and it's kind of an interesting story. You know, the funny thing is, the older we get, I find the more we reflect on our family and our heritage. And uh, when I was a young girl, I would say, you know, 18, 20, when I was in college, I remember a time period when my grandmother was researching her her lineage. She was tracing her roots back to, well, as far as she could go. Mm-hmm. She actually hired a genealogist and she worked on it for probably the next 20 years I mean, it was a long process. This was really before the Internet was readily available. You couldn't you didn't really have as much information just at your fingertips as we do now. Um, So for her to find out, uh, to get records, to to get birth and death records and things like that, you know, she had to do it the old fashioned way, which she had to pull out a pen and paper and write a letter and put a stamp on an envelope and mail it and then wait. (laughs) Right. Yes. And so but she worked on it and worked on it. And, you know, I look back on that now and I realize how hard that was to trace her lineage to get the information to mm-hmm. um, to talk to people that, that held public records in different cities and try it was really like putting a giant jigsaw puzzle together. Oh yeah, and then especially when you're looking for some of that older stuff, oh, some yeah. of it's 
gone, lost, and yeah. especially if there's any immigration into the country, you know, there's exactly. so many names that were spelled wrong or completely oh, yeah. changed. It's you easy know. to go down a wrong, like go down a rabbit hole in completely the wrong direction. Out, yeah, absolutely. She eventually did. She was able to trace uh, through her through her father back uh, all the way to the Mayflower. Wow. Little baby Ocean, I think her name was Oceana, that was born on the, the trip over on the That's Mayflower. Awesome. Um, and so she was able to trace her lineage all the way back there. But interestingly, she had a specific goal in mind, my grandmother did. Um, she was very, very interested in becoming a member of the Daughters of the Revolution. Yes. Okay. The, do- the DAR. A, you're familiar. Yes, I am. I was uh, ROTC kid in high school, so I'm very well you, versed in a lot of those. You know about these ladies mm-hmm. and Absolutely. what they, yeah, it's a very a civic-minded organization, yes. a lot of a service that they do, um, but it's very difficult to get membership. You have to actually prove uh, through actual records, you know, this is not just take your word for it kind of thing, <laughs> right? She had to prove through uh, through court records and birth records and death records and marriage certificates and family Bibles and things of that nature that she was a direct descendant of a Revolutionary War patriot. Mm-hmm. Now, how they define patriot, that is either someone who actually fought in the Revolutionary War or someone who contributed greatly to the cause. Yes. An example might be, let's say, if there was an older gentleman who maybe was too old to actually fight in the war, but he was able to support by giving money to the cause. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Yes. Or giving shelter to what, whatever, something of that nature. And so she was able to trace trace her lineage back to a private that fought. Uh, <laughs> Benjamin <laughs> Mulford fought. And he was a private in the Revolutionary Army out of wow. New Jersey. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I've got some That's New Jersey awesome. roots. Yeah, well, I didn't know what was more shocking. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't hold it we'll against me. We'll forgive you, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was very exciting. But, you know, the interesting thing is when she did all of this at the time, I was a teenager and then I was you know married and had young children and I was busy and I really didn't take a huge interest in it mm-hmm. um, she would lay all the papers out and I would be you know looking at everything I wow yeah grandma that's that's cool that's that's kind of neat you know I had absolutely no interest in yeah. any of this until now so fast forward about 30 years right <laughs> and uh, my daughter says to me my daughter my grown daughter says to me you know didn't my great grandmother become a member of the of the daughters of the revolution i said you know she did i started looking back through the paperwork and lo and behold yeah, interesting thing is at the time i didn't even remember the outcome i didn't remember whether she actually was able to prove it and mm-hmm. get into the dar or whether it had all just gone away and she wasn't able to do it. I ended up finding the documents and the letters that came from the DAR to my grandmother when she was 90 years old in 2000 and 2000 in the year 2000. Wow. And the letter said, we are excited to grant you membership into the Daughters of the American Revolution. (laughs) So my grandmother got in at age 90. So um, while I was in D.C., my daughter said, hey, let's go by the DAR. Let's just go knock on the front door and yeah. see if we can go in. So we're, we're tooling around downtown D.C. We find the Daughters of the American Revolution building, which, by the way, folks, if you've not been, it has one of the most extensive libraries I've ever been in. It is a gorgeous piece of architecture. Takes up an entire city block right on the mall it in downtown D.C. gorgeous. Beautiful. Yes. They have a concert hall there, everything. Um, so we, we go in there and they let us in and uh, they let us look around and then they say, well, if you'd like to trace records, we you know we have a system to do that. We can we can get into the computer system and we will see if we can find your, your grandmother, my grandmother, her great grandmother. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, up she came. That's cool. They had scanned every document that she ever submitted. Wow. There were copies of pages from Bibles from 1830 and 
census records yeah, I, from 17 something. So they and were one of the few government organizations that transitioned to digital very they, well. I guess they were yes. very busy one night scanning everything and putting it all into the system. But it was, so anyways, it turns out since our gra- my grandmother was a member, all we have to do is prove our lineage to her. Mm-hmm. That's as simple as providing a couple of birth certificates. She did all the work. She did, Grandma did all the work. <laughs> so I have to tell you, when we left the DAR that day, we just both had, we were kind of humbled. We were like, wow. And of course I was thinking, dang, I should have told my grandmother how much I appreciated <laughs> all that work. I think we're going to get some kind of button or something, you know, like yeah. a little a little button, a little mm-hmm. DAR button. Yes. And they have some really cool meetings and they're involved in a lot of wonderful, wonderful civic uh, activities. Mm-hmm. A lot and of there's charitable. A, there's a pretty good group right here in the Atlanta area. There for the Daughters is. Of American Revolution. There's one. There's one in, in Marietta yep. and uh, they do all. And there's even a, a group. They have a little segment of the DAR for, well, shall we say young folk. You know what I mean? That would be <laughs> Nick. That would be your the, age. The, the, okay, okay, yes. The, the, yeah, what, yeah, the granddaughters yeah. of the American Revolution. The granddaughter. That's kind of what it's like. It's like the younger, hipper, cooler. They they have more fun activities. Okay. Anyway, so folks, I'll keep you abreast on my my application process to the daughters of the American Revolution. This should be entertaining. Anyway, so back to fall. This is what we're going to be talking about today on the air. Autumn in the South. Beautiful, wonderful. Sweet autumn that is in the air. And quite frankly, the food, because you know I like to talk about food. So we're going to be doing that, folks. We're going to be talking about the state fairs that are all across the South this time of year. And we are going to eat our way from Mississippi to Virginia. So don't go away. We will be right back. State Fair is a great state fair. Don't miss it. Don't even be late. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Southern Sisters radio program. I do kind of like that song. It's a, yeah. little ca- it's a little catchy. A little catchy, <laughs> catchy. The reason we're singing about State Fair is because, guys, it is State Fair season across the South, across the country, really. Um, it really, it is September, October. The weather starts to get a little mm-hmm. bit cooler. And you've got all these wonderful state fairs. And many states have more than one. Like, I know yes. we've got the Georgia State Fair. We've got the North Georgia State Fair. Um, South Carolina has a couple. Mm-hmm. You know, Not only are there all of these wonderful state fairs, but then there are all the festivals. Yes, you know, we everything got around them. Everything around them. All Blackberry festivals, peach festivals, you na- pecan festivals, mm-hmm. you name it. It's out there. And they, they all have one thing in common for the most part. They're there for people to have a good time, to enjoy, to get together, right? Musical performances, thrilling rides, you know, the old Ferris wheel, the yes. classic go up in the Ferris wheel. I love the exhibits at a state fair, you know, like like who's growing the biggest turnip. Yeah, I will say that is pretty interesting. Being a younger kid, you know, I was like, I don't care about the stupid watermelons. Yeah. But now that you get older, you go and you're like, man... Because I have a garden in my backyard, I know how hard that is. It is hard to do. It isn't. And and some of these people have been doing it for years, and they take it very seriously, folks. Boy, if you go in and you win a blue ribbon at one of those things, it's it's saying something. You have arrived. Point of pride. Yeah, competition (laughs) is is heated, shall we say? (laughs) And the livestock exhibits also, and the livestock competitions. I've watched a couple documentaries.
documentaries about that. It's a whole culture unto itself. Oh, it is. It's, you know? And that's just as intense, if yeah. not more so, Absolutely. with the livestock. Grooming Absolutely. and preparing your heifer to be to compete <laughs> you know, with the other heifers at the, at the state fair. But yes, indeed, folks, it is state fair season, and uh, that just makes me happy. You know, there are more than 100 uh, state fairs and festivals taking place across the country in the next two months. And uh, it's really, whether you want to see pig racing at the fair of uh, Virginia, how about that one? The state fair of Virginia's got pig racing. How about a yo-yo contest and a white tiger show at the Georgia State Fair? There you go. Yeah, mm. A white tiger show? A white tiger. Ooh. They, fa- they found themselves a white tiger somewhere. <laughs> Costume contests and trick-or-treating at the North Charleston Harvest Festival. There's Ooh. another one for you. The Livestock Show and the Rodeo. Let me tell you, the Louisiana State Fair, they are they are cranking out some fun activities. Hmm. They've got the Antique Tractor Pull, okay? They've got the hail ba- uh, was it Hay Bale Decorating <laughs> Contest. So it's almost like a little float? I, but I guess hay, so, they decorate a bale of hay. That's pretty cool. I wouldn't think that'd be that hard, would it? Uh, you would think not, but I guarantee you find some pictures, you'd probably be yeah, blown I w- away. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you think it's a, what's the big deal decorating a hay bale and somebody's probably taking it very seriously. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, and the cook-offs. I oh, do love yes. the cook-offs. The barbecue cook-offs. Barbecue yes. cook-offs, chili cook-offs, <laughs> everything. But it's about the food, guys. And when it comes to state fair food, uh, there, there's a little motto here that you really just sort of need to adhere to, and that is abandon nutrition <laughs> just just don't beat yourself up about it no. this is what i i typically for for all intents and purposes eat healthy most of the time and you folks folks might know i've talked a little bit on the air about eating a little cleaner uh more, more a little healthier mm-hmm. cutting out some of the sugar not on the day that i nope. go to a state fair mm-hmm. it you ain't happening and you just go to town hello right it is pure sugary salty deep fried goodness you like that? That's how I describe it. Yeah. Okay. So it's wonderful. Now, some of these dishes that we see at state fairs, some of these wonderful things that we eat and nibble on at state fairs are are classics. They've been around for a long, long time. And some of them, not so classic. Very true. A little crazy, some of them. Some, some of them get out there, but... Some of them are a little out there. And, you know, at first you're like, ew, yuck. And then you start thinking about, I don't know, maybe I could try that. Why don't we talk about a few? Yeah. What do you think, Nick? What do we got? All right. How about this? Let's start off with a bird dog. A bird dog? A bird dog. Would you like to know what this is? Yeah. Now, the imagination could go into all kinds of awful places, but it's not, <laughs> it's no kind of kind of pheasant with feathers on a bun. It is um, a hot dog bun, okay, and you stuff it with chicken tenders, nacho mm-hmm. cheese sauce, and a whole heaping pile of crumbled smoked bacon. Oh, Hello. that sounds good. I'm thinking there's not <gasps> anything there I don't like. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right? So that's a bird dog. I'm loving that I one. Like that. Now, one of my favorites, and uh, if I had to probably choose one one fair food that mm-hmm. I would choose if I went to a state fair, it would be funnel cake. Yes. Okay. Now that is the classic, you know, all time classic, wonderful funnel cakes. Do you know they're really not that hard to make? No, they're not. They're pretty simple. They are simple and I've got a good recipe. And folks, if you want to go and check out my Southern Sisters funnel cake recipe, all you got to do is go to my website, southernsistershome.com. Click on the blog. You'll have instructions there on how to, uh, on how to make a funnel cake. It's not hard. And guess what? You do need a funnel. Yes. <laughs> I felt like an idiot in the beginning. I was like, how do they make these things? No, there is an actual funnel. There is an actual funnel involved. Yes. So a funnel cake, guys, think about it. Crispy, crunchy, melt in your mouth, deep fried goodness, mm-hmm. right? So although the, you know, the concept of funnel cakes, folks, can actually be traced back to medieval times, right? Believe it or not. Yeah. Our, our, our ancestors had that an idea. Long ago. They did. They knew how to eat well. They knew it was up. But here in the U.S., we pretty much attribute the funnel cake to the Pennsylvania Dutch. 
Okay, now those are the German speaking immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania back in the 17th and 18th centuries. Right now, within their culture, they had made funnel cakes for special occasions and holidays for generations. This was not unusual Mm -hmm. to the Pennsylvania Dutch. Right. But as with all, I like to say, great, iconic culinary creations (laughs) like the funnel cake, (laughs) there is a moment that the funnel cake went from a simple Pennsylvania Dutch treat to a national treasure. And I can pinpoint the date. Really? Are you prepared? Yeah, what happened? This is very exciting, actually. 1952, it was the Cuts Town, K-U-T-Z Town, Folk Festival in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay? So at the festival that year, there were three Pennsylvania Dutch women. Mm-hmm. I love these women. They're, they're great. They, they should be Southern Sisters, only they're from Pennsylvania, so they don't, they don't qualify. We can give them a pass. <laughs> we can give them a pass. Maybe. So three Pencil, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch women, they set up a concession stand. The three women were Grace uh, Henninger, Stella Heinley, and Emma Miller. Got it? Okay, now it was Emma's recipe that they used. And in the back of that concession stand, those three ladies deep fried their funnel cakes and sold them for 25 cents a piece. Mm. To say they were a huge hit would be an understatement. Yeah. They went, people went nuts for them. They sold thousands at that festival. And subsequently, they launched the humble funnel cake into national popularity. What do you think about that? I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Just one little tiny, hey, let's share and see if people like it. You know, and... well, think about it. What's not to love? It's fried dough. I know. <laughs> you know, so we deep fry it so it's nice and fatty, right? And then we shit cover it with powdered sugar. sugar. Oh, What's not to love, it's right? amazing. Now, I will tell you, I can attribute the funnel cake to perhaps the biggest lie that I ever told in my life. <laughs> and and I don't lie. I, I pride myself on being a relatively honest person. Um, you, you know, but I, I did one time make the statement Oh, there's no way I could eat an entire funnel cake all by myself. I don't believe anyone who says that. Yeah, well, it was a big fat lie. <laughs> I've done it. You know, you buy one and you're like, I'll share it, you know, and then you start tearing off pieces of that funnel cake and that, you know, and then and then that powdered sugar's going oh. everywhere, right? Or, or or you're about to put one in your mouth and you cough or you sneeze or you inhale and the powdered sugar goes up your nose. <laughs> it's like a powdered donut, but so much better. So much better. It's just part of the experience. Yeah. Now, folks, if you go to my website, what I'm going to post alongside the funnel cake recipe is a photo of Emma Miller making her funnel cake. Someone snapped a picture of her in 1952. It's great. Now, I like the classic ones with the powdered sugar. Do you know that you can get a red velvet funnel cake with cream cheese icing drizzle on top? I've actually had one. No. I had it at the Chattahoochee Mountain Fair did up in Northeast really? Georgia. I did. And I saw it and I said, no way, because I love red velvet cake. Yeah. And I said, I got to try it. And I did. And What'd you it think? was phenomenal. Wow. Oh my gosh, it was so good. Really? So, so good. I haven't had one, but I can see gotta, how gotta, it would be I'm going to have to look great. at your recipe and find a way to throw some you red throw velvet some in there. throw some of that in there. Mm. Yeah. Oh, mm. that's amazing. Sounds you can good. top it with Bavarian cream. I saw a photograph of this mm. and it did look quite good. Chocolate and caramel drizzle on top. Ooh. A little dollop of strawberry preserves and some powdered sugar in there. How about that? Ooh, yes. Oh, yes. Fruit toppings make it just fruit. amazing. Right. And I think you got to have the powdered sugar. Don't yeah. you think? That sweetens up the whole thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, my mom is a diabetic and uh. she loves funnel cakes. And she even says, she goes, you know what? I'll just have to go to the hospital, but I'm eating me a funnel cake really? with powdered sugar. I wonder if it would be the same if you shook a little Splenda on top or Truvia. Uh, probably, probably not. not. <laughs> it's a nice thought. How about a waffle dog? What a do you think, Nick? Dog. Okay, listen to this. and I, I've got to try this. This is a hot dog on a stick dipped in waffle batter, fried in a special press. I'm guessing it's kind of like a waffle Ooh. iron, right? And drizzled with maple syrup. Oh. 
That sounds good. Hello. <laughs> I could totally eat that. How about fried Kool-Aid? I know. How you, would you do that? You pause. Right. How do you even fry a liquid? It's not as crazy as it sounds. You're actually making a Kool-Aid batter is what you're doing. Ooh. It's flour, water, sugar, and Kool-Aid, right? All mixed mm-hmm. together. So it's like this pink batter. You scoop it up and drop the balls of dough into the hot oil. Got it? Cherry is the most popular flavor. Yeah. So it basically, what you got here, Nick, is basically a sort of sweet cherry-flavored fried hush puppy. Ooh, yeah, it sounds actually, good. And they roll those in powdered sugar, too, because <laughs> everything's better with powdered sugar. Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I've got to I got to head on ever to, to one of these one of these wonderful state fairs. And like you said, there's plenty of them going on right now. There's no shortage of, of a fair to attend. No. And the best thing about them, too, they're usually never very expensive to attend. No. The whole family can go family a few friendly. bucks and you're set. And you're family good. Friendly. No worries. You're absolutely right. And fill up, guys. Don't skip lunch if you're going to go that night because you're going to want to eat all night. <laughs> we are going to continue with, with a Southern State Fair food. That's right, guys, across the South. And we're going to be back in a few minutes with the big crazy sandwich category. Hello. Dollars to donuts that our state fair is the best state fair in our state. Welcome back, folks. This is the Southern Sisters Radio Program, the show for Southern women and the men who adore us. And I got to tell you, I know a lot of men, they're going to like these next food ideas that I'm coming up. We are talking state fairs. It's that time of year, guys. It's August, September, October. It, that is the busy fair festival season, right? Starts to cool off a little bit. Uh, our appetites start to get a little bit bigger, right? <laughs> and we start wanting to down some serious state fair food. A couple yeah. of things they all pretty much have in common, and this won't surprise you, I'm sure. Sugary, salty, savory, fatty. But it's also good. It's also good. <laughs> Let's start with our next category, which is the big crazy sandwich category. Okay, big crazy sandwich. You got I got two for you, and you got to respect these guys. I'm telling you, the first one was a great feature at the North Georgia State Fair a couple of years ago. Okay, it's called the Big Papa. The Big Papa. Hello, right? Let me describe it to you because you just really have to kind of sit back and think about this. Okay, it's a double bacon cheeseburger smothered in barbecue pork. Okay. Topped with hand-cut French fries, drizzled with both ranch dressing and jalapeno barbecue sauce, all piled onto a toasted onion bun. Now, if you can eat one of these babies, the Big Papa, in under five minutes, they will give you an I ate the Big Papa t-shirt. I don't know about five minutes. That's a little. <laughs> you that's can a put little... it away quicker than that. <laughs> oh no, you mean that's not? I thought you meant you didn't need that much time. I can put. I can do some serious damage to this about, in five yeah, minutes. Yeah, I probably could. Oh, hello. That sounds so. Good. It's a little crazy, isn't it? How about this one? The defibrillator. <laughs> Aptly okay. named. Now you could also call this the grilled cheeseburger. Now I, I noticed this. It's important to understand which words you emphasize. Listen to the difference. There's grilled cheese. There's the there, hold on. There's the grilled cheeseburger mm-hmm. or the grilled cheese burger. Do you see the difference? Uh, yes. Okay. Here's the difference. The uh, the defibrillator is the grilled cheeseburger. It's two grilled cheese sandwiches served as the top and bottom buns for a massive grilled hamburger. Oh my gosh! You got it. Wow. Okay. Now of course you got to have some toppings, right? Because there's not enough fat in this to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> we got to top it off with some bacon and some deep fried pickles. Ooh. Hello. That sounds. Defibrillator. I think if you just ate one, you wouldn't need a defibrillator. If you ate these every day, you might. You might. Yes. Let's talk about candy and caramel apples. 
Because they just make me happy. That's another staple. You know, the mm. funnel cakes and the caramel apples. You, you got you to gotta get yeah. one of each before you leave the Right? Fair. It falls to. under the classics yes. category, don't you think? Right? Now, the candy apple was the older cousin to the caramel apple. Okay? You can trace a candied apple, guys, all the way back to 1908, thanks to one of our New York neighbors, or, new, or I should say our northern neighbors, from New Jersey. Uh, we can thank him for this creation. It was a candy maker named William Kolb. He was experimenting with new ideas for using his red cinnamon candy for Christmas treats. Okay? It's always fascinating to me when I think about, like, how people invent these mm-hmm. things. I mean, you know, what was William doing? He was standing around thinking, what can I dip in this melted red cinnamon candy? Right? I mean, if it were today... If it were modern times, yeah. he'd probably dip a hot dog, right? <laughs> or yeah. a piece of bacon. <laughs> but William Cole decided to stick a stick in an apple and dip it in the candy. And hence we have the candied apple. He sold them originally for five cents a pop and they were a huge hit. Now, the caramel apple is not nearly as old, okay? This is uh, fast forward to the 1950s. Now, the caramel apple, this we can attribute to a craft food employee named Dan Walker. He was fooling around with some leftover caramels from Halloween. And another funny thought in my mind is like, you know, maybe caramels didn't sell that well that year. So Dan <laughs> Walker is like, you know, at craft and he's standing there at like a mile high pile of caramels. And his boss says, Dan, we got to get rid of these caramels, you know, come up with something. You know, so, <laughs> so he melts them down and he dips apples on sticks in the caramel. Voila. Genius. Right. Yeah. This is my preference. A tradition is this. born. A tradition is born. I, I I will go to the fair for the sole purpose of getting a caramel mm-hmm. apple. Now, I'm not sure who had the idea of then taking the caramel apples and rolling them in peanuts or drizzling them with chocolate or, you know, but that was equally inspired, in but my opinion. Yeah. No, I like those, right? those people were geniuses, too. Any more sugar <laughs> we can put on that apple? <laughs> it's a good thing. Oh, how about corn dogs? Oh, my, my, uh, of my. Of course. Isn't, oh, I just do love it. A little bit of mustard and ketchup right. on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Coat. You know, we had a conversation about the the adequacy of ketchup as a hot dog condiment on a show not too long oh, ago. Oh, really? Yes. And there were some people that said that anyone over the age of 18 should not put mustard on a hot dog. And I said, well, they can just keep their opinions to themselves. <laughs> I'll agree with that. you got to have mustard. But here, you know what? A clue to the origin of the corn dog, because I know, Nick, you're probably asking yourself, where on earth? Did the corn dog come from? Seems so simple, but you wouldn't think about it, right? Who thought to do this? But a clue can come from a U.S. patent application. Okay, this patent was granted in 1927 to some German Texan sausage makers. I think that's kind of funny right there. (laughs) So there's some Germans that settled in Texas, right? Now, the applicant for that patent said, and this is his quote from his patent application. Are you ready? He said... I have discovered that articles of food such, for instance, wieners, boiled ham, hard-boiled eggs, cheese, sliced peaches, pineapples, bananas and like, and cherries, dates, figs, strawberries, etc., when impaled on sticks and dipped in batter, including self-rising flour, and then deep-fried in a vegetable oil at a temperature of 390 degrees, the resultant food product on a stick on a stick for a handle is a wholesome and tasty refreshment. And he was 100% on point. Is that not 1927? He understood the value (laughs) of some kind of fried something on a stick, right? (laughs) I love it. Anyway, but there are several people that want to claim responsibility for the corn dog. And I tell you, if I thought I had invented it, I'd be probably fighting for credit too. Oh, yeah. Right? There's Carl and Neil Fletcher, right? They introduced their corny dogs at the Texas State Fair sometime between 1938 and 1942. 
Then we got the Pronto Pup vendors from the Minnesota State Fair. They claim they invented it in 1941. You got the Cozy Dog Drive-In in Springfield, Illinois. They claim they claimed that they were the first to actually put the corn dogs on a stick. See, that they, that's their uh. distinction. That's what they're saying. And then there's California. There's always California, <laughs> which opened a restaurant called Hot Dog on a Stick at Muscle, Shoal, Muscle, uh, Muscle Beach in Santa Monica. Now, I have to tell you, I'm looking at these right here, and I got to go with the Texans. Yeah. I'm yeah. siding with the Texans uh, on this one, right? Absolutely. Well, first of all, <laughs> not for any particularly scientific reason, other than that they are far more Southern than the other you know, <laughs> people who are claiming credit. And quite frankly, with our affinity for cornbread, I do believe that it's more likely that a Southerner invented I, the corn that, dog. That's what I'm thinking, too. I'm, I'm going was with the that. Corn, somebody had cornbread and a yeah. hot dog and went, wait a minute. Hello. Put them together. Put them out together. Stick it on a stick. Yeah. Sold. Happiness. Yes. I'm giving it to Carl and Neil Fletcher. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what? I got to love this one. I really do. And folks, I'm going to teach you how to make this one. What do you think about deep fried Oreos? Ooh. At first, good. you know, if, if, you, if you're not the type of person who thinks outside of the box, then when you first hear this, you might be a little taken aback by it. But I got to say, it, it is a state fair obsession. Mm-hmm. Most state fairs now have a deep fried Oreos. And, you know, it's got all the elements of, you know, fair food euphoria. Except for something savory. So I was oh. thinking about this earlier. I was thinking, yeah, the only thing we're missing is something savory. So yeah. here's my idea. What would okay. you say we take the Oreo, we wrap a piece of bacon around it, Ooh. right? Then we dip it in the batter and fry it up. Oh. I mean, it could work. That sounds good. It might be a little weird. Okay. Guys, this is an easy one to make. All you got to do is you need about two cups of vegetable oil for frying, one egg, one cup of milk, two teaspoons of vegetable oil, one cup of Bisquick, which is perfectly acceptable yep. in this recipe, and a package of Oreos. You're going to heat your oil in a Dutch oven to 375 degrees. In a little bowl, you're going to whisk together the eggs, the milk, and the two teaspoons of oil. Add the Bisquick mix and whisk it good until you have no lumps, all right? You want to dip your cookies in the batter one at a time and then carefully place them in the hot oil. You don't want to crowd them in the pan, and you only want to fry maybe four or five at a time. Just cook them until they're golden brown. It only takes about two minutes. <laughs> Drain them on a paper towel and, of course, sprinkle them with powdered sugar. Powdered sugar. Yes. <laughs> now, you know, you can use the same process to make deep fried chocolate chip cookie dough balls. Oh. Uh, you can. <gasps> All right. Brace yourself. Hold on to your chair, Nick. Deep fried Twinkies. Mm. 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 Now, here's the interesting thing. I could never eat all of this in the same day. No. I would act, some of the stuff is so outrageous, I'd probably have to kind of gear up for it. You would probably, yeah. There probably is a reason I only go to the fair once a year. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, none of us would survive on a diet uh, as v- such. Very true. <laughs> now, how we have a little, uh, little category here of weird and unusual a- items. I think we have time to get these in. How about pizza cones? Those have been recently a popular item at state fairs across the South. Basically, it's the dough formed into a cone. Imagine, imagine when you get ice cream and you have a waffle cone. Yeah. Instead of that, imagine that shape, but it's pizza dough. It's savory pizza dough, okay? And then what they do is they, they fry it, and then they stuff the inside with mozzarella cheese, Ooh. sausage, peppers, onions, all of the pizza ingredients. That sounds pretty good. Kind of fun, mm-hmm. right? Walking around with a little yeah. cone of, of, of pizza goodness. <laughs> How about a maple bacon funnel cake? <gasps> I could maple do that. bacon? Yeah, I yes. could do that, right? Yes. How about a Krispy Kreme cheeseburger? Krispy uh, Kreme, yes. Yes, anything Krispy Kreme, anything. After it and it's yes. Classic. Okay, <laughs> I gotta love this one. Frosted flakes, crusted chicken on a stick. 
Ooh. So it's a chicken tender, and the breading is Frosted Flakes. Ooh. And then it's deep fried. That's Hello. Sounds... I'm not a big fan of the lamb and mashed potato parfait. I love lamb, though. I, I do love I'd lamb. i have to give it a shot. I'm just not, I'm not so sure about walking around like a parfait. <laughs> well, folks, I would love to hear from you. What great and wonderful state fair food have you had recently? If you've been to a state fair, email us and tell us about it. We'd love to share your story on the air. Our email is radio at southernsistershome.com, and we'll be right back. Southern Sisters Radio Show. Now, with your Southern narrative, sharing stories from around the South, here is your host, Jenny McCormick Earhart. Monroeville after Harper Lee. Story by Jennifer Cornegay. On Friday, February 19th, 2016, Nell Harper Lee died in her hometown of Monroeville, Alabama. She was 89 years old. She passed peacefully, and the world mourned. The author of To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the most beloved and influential American novels published in the last century, as well as one of the most scrutinized, Ghost Set a Watchman, had millions of fans, yet only a few, few close friends. To all but those who knew her well, she was a bit of a mystery, and that, in combination with her talent, made her fascinating. A week later, on Friday, February 26, 2016, my mother-in-law and one of my closest friends died in her hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. She was 68 years old. She passed suddenly, without warning, and her family and many friends mourned. She was simultaneously the toughest and most tender-hearted woman I've ever known. And the mystery of how these seemingly opposing traits worked so well together made her remarkable. My husband and I spent the afternoon of her death at his parents' house with family, quickly beginning work on funeral arrangements, both as a necessity and as a shield to push back the shock and grief threatening to swallow us whole. I retreated to the formal living room and sank into the couch. On a marble-topped table in front of me was a stack of glossy hardback coffee table books. Two elaborately painted ceramic dogs next to the stack held a single small book upright between their turned backs, a worn paperback copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. Between the fancy bookends, beside the pretty books, in the room with crystal candlesticks and stately wingbacks, was this beat-up volume, its frayed yellow pages so obviously read many times. Its place there said, this book matters, and reminded me of the love of books my mother-in-law and I shared the long, meandering conversations we had about them, and of the special, almost sacred place this one book and one author held in both our hearts. I realized I'd never again talk about anything at all with her, and I cried for the first time that day. My family is now learning how to navigate a world without my mother-in-law, while Lee's family and friends do the same. So too is a place inextricably and forever linked to her, the place of her birth and death, Monroeville. It is pondered, what's its future will hold without its most famous resident? What will Monroeville be like without her? To even attempt to answer that question, we must first know the two principal characters in the story, Lee and Monroeville, and their roles in relation to each other. Their tale is underpinned by a common theme in the South. Small-town girl widens her gaze and outgrows her roots. But as it unfolded under a microscope of international interest, 
it became tangled with misunderstandings and disappointments. And despite Lee's recent exit from the stage, it's still being written. Monroeville was incorporated in 1899 and is the county seat of Monroe County. Both were named for U.S. President's James Monroe. Drive into its center today and there, like a proper lady wearing a frilly white hat, sits the old country courthouse, topped with a wedding cake-like cupola built in 1903. It now houses the Monroe County Heritage Museum and sits next to a more modern, boxy building that serves as the current courthouse. Both are surrounded by a fairly typical southern small-town square, its perimeter lined with little shops, offices, and restaurants, as well as some abandoned, closed-up spaces. The town has gained fame not just as the birthplace of Harper Lee, but also as the template and inspiration for the fictional setting of Mockingbird, Maycomb. Yet any time she was asked, Lee denied that Maycomb was based on Monroeville. Her dear friend, historian, and retired Auburn University professor, Dr. Wayne Flint, laughs at her illogical refutation. When Mockingbird was first published, and everyone said it was just Monroeville thinly disguised, she belligerently denied that it had anything to do with Monroeville, he said. Which, of course, is patently absurd. There are so many trails back to Monroeville, both in her psyche and her place names and even specific incidents. There's no doubt Monroeville is the setting for both of her books. Flint believes Lee would never admit it because she wanted Maycomb to be any place, not one single place. But Monroeville is a place. It's a dot on Alabama's map that's almost 100 miles removed in any direction from any major city and 20 miles off the nearest interstate. As lifelong resident George Thomas Jones put it, there couldn't have been a more isolated country town than here in the 1920s and 30s. The 93-year-old museum volunteer and columnist for the weekly Monroe Journal recalled what the town was like during his childhood, which was parallel to Lee's. No mainline highway and no mainline railroad came through here. When I came here in 1926 at age three, there were no paved roads or even a sewage system, he said. Much progress and many changes have come since then, including the addition of a sewage system. But according to Flint, the town's remoteness is one reason among several that it has always struggled with with its identity. It gets lumped into the Black Belt region, but it really has no antebellum history, he said. The county's population peaked in 1900, It's been downhill ever since, and it's the same for the city. It peaked in 1990 and is now 25 years into decline, he said. Today's population is approximately 6,000 residents. Nell Harper Lee was born in 1926 to A.C. and Frances Lee. She had three siblings, Louise, Ed, and Alice. By all accounts, her odd childhood was idyllic. Her mother's mental illness did not overshadow the love and care she received from a father that she revered, and a much older sister, Alice, whom she adored. There was no book yet. There were no great expectations. There was no legion of clamoring fans. She was not yet Harper. She was only Nell. Harper Lee, the writer, was standoffish, an inspiration, a legend. But Nell, the name used by her family and inner circle of friends, was someone else, witty, generous, a reluctant celebrity. Nancy Grisham Anderson, a former Auburn University Montgomery English professor and now distinguished outreach fellow, is among the foremost Harper Lee scholars in the world, but she was also Nell's friend. She stressed the care she took to separate the two Lees. Her academic study of Harper's works and her conversation with her friend Nell very rarely intertwined. 
don't think we ever exchanged a single word about Mockingbird, Anderson said. But that's why our friendship worked. She was always wary of being sought after and being used for the book. I never presumed on our friendship. But even before the book, Lee stood out among her peers. Jones knew her as a tomboy. At some point, she took off the overalls and put on a skirt and blouse, but she never stopped being different from other girls of the time. She graduated from Monroe County High School and went to Huntington College in Montgomery, where she never really did fit in. She left Huntington after a year and transferred to the University of Alabama. She began law school there, but quit one semester shy of a degree. In 1949, she moved to New York City, where she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. When she went to New York, Jones, like most in town, lost touch with Nell. We heard rumors that she was writing a book and that it was about the town, about us. But most of us thought, what on earth here could be interesting enough to bother writing about? Jones was A.C. Lee's golf caddy for a time and remembered that when the book was about to come out, even her, fa- even Nell's father, A.C., was unsure why anyone would care to read a story about a little Alabama town. He visited the local bookstore because he heard that the owner had pre-ordered 50 copies of Mockingbird, and this was a man who'd never ordered more than two copies of any book save the Bible, Jones said. Well, as he tells it, A.C. told the owner he appreciated his faith in his daughter, but he'd buy the extra books if they didn't sell. Of course, he didn't buy a one. They sold out faster than you could blink, Jones says. The day To Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, Harper became an instant celebrity. That same day, Nell's life was changed forever. The spotlight on her book and her life was exciting, but equally blinding and unsettling. Lee began to suspect that most of the new faces who now longed to be near her were interested solely in her book. The anonymity New York provided became even more valuable to her, and it's one of the main reasons she stayed there until she no longer could. During the initial days of her recovery, after suffering a debilitating stroke in her New York City apartment in 2007, she found herself yearning for the softer edges and considerate touches found in the manners that were commonplace in the South. She decided to do her rehab in Birmingham. She thought she'd fully recover and then go back home to New York, but it soon became obvious that wasn't going to happen. She never regained enough mobility to be able to get around in the city. She never lived there again. In Birmingham, she was instantly and easily recognized. She couldn't go out to dinner there without someone wanting a cocktail napkin autographed, Anderson said. And Birmingham didn't offer family or a circle of trusted friends either. So when her time at rehab was done, and she'd accepted that a return to New York was out, she decided she wanted to be closer to her sister Alice and the few friends she still had in Monroeville. She moved into a nursing home called The Meadows, and it would be her home until her death. This was one way in which Monroeville represented frustration to her, Anderson said. She was used to being able to stroll the New York streets unnoticed and go to the theater or a baseball game. She loved baseball, without being known or bothered. In Monroeville, there was really nowhere to walk, and by the time she was forced to live there, she couldn't walk. Despite her reclusive reputation, her close friends and those in Monroeville, even those who called her Harper instead of Nell, knew better. Join us again next week, folks, as we finish up our very wonderful Southern narrative, Monroeville, after Harper Lee. And 
And folks, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Southern Sisters Radio Program. I'm telling you, I am I'm ready for some some state fair food. There's no question about oh, it. Oh yes, right. You'll get we got to find one this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we got it. And folks, if you have any fun and exciting ideas for the show or concepts you'd like us to talk about, please send us an email: radio at southernsistershome.com. And remember, the recipes that we talked about on the air today, as well as a lot of our other photographs of Southern fair food, will be on our website: southernsistershome.com. Have a great week. Thank you.